Let's get into it, hey? Right, stick it. Let's have a confession session time. Who needs to change? Stick a hand up if you need to change. All right. Everyone needs to change, right? Now, the reality is that everyone does change, all right? You either change in a positive way or a negative way. There's actually no stationary position, all right? And in fact, if you look at someone, I don't know whether anyone's ever said this to you, but someone you haven't seen for a few years comes up and says, you haven't changed a bit, all right? Now, in one sense, that's true, but in another sense, they have, haven't they? They've become more concrete. They've changed into being more locked into the way that they are. And I actually think that if someone were to come up to any of us here and say, you haven't changed a bit after five years, that would be a tragedy, wouldn't it? Because we all need to change. And the question that I want to ask you today is how, what plan have you got to change? What plan have you got to help someone else change? You see, I've got a three-year-old boy, Joel, who was the one who was fearful about going to Project Kids. It's actually fun over there, all right? We think he's really cute, right? But if you could go down to the shops and buy a, a rubber kind of straitjacket thing so that he wouldn't grow up, would that be appropriate or inappropriate? Inappropriate. That would be dodgy, all right? Because the nature of having a kid, I mean, it would be weird, all right? It would kind of be like, uh, what was that movie with... Ah, uh... oh, it's gone. It's gone out of my head. Where Benjamin Button... Where he starts old and grows young as he gets older. All right? But it would be weird, wouldn't it, if you put some kind of rubber suit on my three-year-old and he never ever changed from a three-year-old, there'd be something wrong, wouldn't there? And it's a bit the case with us. If we are immature and we stay immature and we aren't consistently growing, um, there's something wrong with us. All right? If you go and buy a plant from the nursery and you plant it and it stays that high, there's a problem. All right? We've got plants over there that are that high and we planted them um, almost two years ago, all right? And you know what's wrong with them? The wind's strong and it snapped them off, right? So every time they got big, they got snapped off, so there's something wrong, all right? If they stay small, there's something wrong. Another illustration is, uh, you know, the classic kid game, and it probably gets up into um, some 20-year-old, often males who are still kids, all right? Uh, but it's kind of, let's run up the escalator. You know that one? And it's coming down and we'll run up. Seriously, change is like that, isn't it? Unless you've actually got a plan and unless you're actually putting some effort in, what happens? Well, you just go backwards, all right? There's actually no stationary. So uh, that's what we're going to cover today. We're going to have a little bit of a look at change and how to bring about change in others and in yourself. What I did want to do is show you really quickly an alternate view of change, okay? This is a, uh, a quote from Richard Dawkins. Right? This is probably the prevailing view scientifically about what's going on in our world at the moment. Uh, because often in the Christian faith you can kind of come in and you kind of think, oh, this is cool, yeah, we can change and God helps us to change and you kind of just take it for granted. It's amazing. It actually is amazing because in the evolutionary view uh, you actually don't have any control over change. Let me show you this quote. This is, uh, this is kind of like, you can imagine... Dawkins running a church service, which he wouldn't do because he's an atheist, right? But if he ran one, he'd, this would be his opening scripture that he'd read out, and it'd be really depressing, right? Check this out. The total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. During the minute that it takes me to compose this sentence, thousands of animals are being eaten alive. Many others are running for their lives, whimpering with fear. Others are slowly being devoured from within by rasping parasites. This is encouraging, isn't it? I mean, this is, why, this is why he writes such good songs, Richard Dawkins. Well, he's not a musician, but anyway. Um, thousands of all kinds are dying of starvation, thirst and disease. It must be so. If there ever is a time of plenty, this very fact will automatically lead to an increase in the population until the natural state of starvation and misery is restored. <laughs> isn't this good? And you wonder why people who are not spiritual people get depressed. Yeah? That's depressing. And it gets worse. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Now, when you look at that, do you get a sense that human beings can change or do you get a sense like they're a bit out of control? Well, they're kind of out of control. 
That's what they are. And that's really what Dawkins is saying. Is he's saying it's about genes, it's about DNA, it's about chemicals. And this is the weird thing, because Christians like to have big debates about free will, right? But in the evolutionary system, you actually don't have free will. There's no free will, all right? You're being driven by all of that stuff, all the genes, the chemicals, the hormones. So what we do in our society to try and affect change is we actually bring laws in. So I thought I'd read you a little bit of an article out of the Courier-Mail. Human behaviour is not something easily melded with taxes and regulations, particularly when it comes to society's more enduring vices. Many of us remember growing up in the Bielke-Peterson era where fun was frowned upon most sternly. Pubs shut early, prostitution and naughty books and movies were banned and pokies deemed the scourge of Lucifer himself, who apparently dwelt somewhere south of the Tweed River with all the other sinners and socialists. This was an age when police raised the university of Queensland campus and used crowbars to jimmy condom vending machines off toilet walls lest they should encourage licentious conduct. And that was in 1987 at the height of the AIDS epidemic and the Grim Reaper campaign. So how did this affect the day-to-day behaviour of us young people? Not a jot. As starving students, or later for me as an equally impoverished cadet reporter, we ate, we drank, we made merry with the opposite sex and we listened to allegedly subversive and offensive music from the likes of the dead Kennedys. Some of you might remember them. I don't. I must be a bit younger, just in case you're wondering. Uh, tightly controlled hotel opening hours, didn't care about extracurricular activities. They just guaranteed that we knew which publicans were happy to answer a knock at the back door after closing time. His whole point in the article was that legislation and rules actually didn't bring about change in people. It just inspired people to find ways around the, uh, the legislations. So how do you change? Well, in the Christian system, in the biblical system, there is great hope for you. All right? Because at the very beginning, this is exactly what God said he was doing when he created you. He said to uh, the other members of the Trinity, they all said to themselves, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And you know what the good news is for you today? This is really good news, right? That you should smile at this. He's still doing that. He's still about that. Now, you would think that after Genesis 3, where it all just gets messed up, he throws his hands up in the air and he says, stuff you humans, you're hopeless, you can't do anything right. But no, it's not. He's still on his original mission to create man and woman in his likeness. And that's what he wants to do with you. Now, the weird thing is that we get stuck in the deceitfulness of sin and we don't see how festy things are that we get involved in and we don't see how they hurt us. But the truth is that God actually wants to move you to a place of wholeness and this is not like a real kind of law thing, right? I reckon a lot of my life I've grown up just thinking, I've just got to try harder. This is not a try harder thing. This is what God wants to do thing. And this is good for you. And I reckon a huge part of the battle is actually believing that following God and doing what he asks you to do is actually the best thing for his glory and for your good. And for some of you probably even today, as you hear me say this, don't fully believe me when I say that. And it's because of the deceitfulness of sin, all right? You get hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and you don't see what you need to see, all right? And we said this in the bib counselling training. Well, I said it. We didn't say it. And I said it and everyone else listened. That's going how it works when you're a speaker. But I said it in the bib counselling training that if you're sitting there and you think, yeah, no, I get it, you don't get it. The Bible is very clear about that because sin is deceitful and it tricks you. All the time. And I can guarantee, as wide-eyed as you are about what's going on in your soul at the moment, there's some parts in your soul where your eyes are closed and you don't see it, which is why you need each other, which is why I'm doing this session today with you guys and why we did the bib counselling training, because at the end of the day, the mechanism by which God actually wants to bring about change in each other and change in you is each other. He wants to do it through his Holy Spirit, through each other. So... Hopefully what will happen is uh, you'll see some things in people around you and you'll think, man, they need to see something a little bit more clearly. They need to see the truth of God a bit more clearly and hopefully they'll see some stuff in you, which is why it's really good and really important to be in, in biblical community so you can be exposed to that kind of help. Just want to read one more scripture from uh, James. This is uh, incredible Incredibly challenging scripture, if you read it with me there. But be doers of the word 
and not hearers only. That's interesting, deceiving yourselves. You know what James is suggesting? It's probably going more than just suggesting. He's telling you that if you walk out of church, having heard someone preach the word and you do nothing, you've just added another brick of self-deception in your wall. Now, if we're all to be brutally honest and we're able to go through and take an inventory, and it's probably not possible, but if we took an inventory of how many sermons we've listened to and we've walked out, we've done nothing, we probably have quite a large wall of deception that's actually been built up in our lives. And we've probably got really quite specific areas in our life where we're happy to be deceived and we've bricked up the wall around it and we kind of say to God, yeah, I'm happy for you to come in and you can work here and here and here. But in terms of this area, that's off limits, man. I put a 7,000 volt barb barbed wire electrified fence up and you're just not to go in there, right? But we all know God well enough, right? And that's the first place he wants to go. He walks in, he goes, I want to go there. You go, no, I don't want you to go there. He says, yeah, but I don't want to go there. No, I, you're not allowed. And he goes, I'm going in. I'm omniscient, I'm omnipotent, and I'm going in. And I'm already there. And you're going, no, you're not. You're not there and you're not going in. And you, so you have this tussle, and uh, it's classic kind of human tussle with God where you just fight it out with him for a while and in the end you know he's omnipotent and he's the most powerful one you're never going to beat him so you might as well give in because his purposes are good for you all right and it's not just about his purposes being good for you his purposes are good for him too all right I'm not making this a man-centered gospel we're making this a God-centered gospel all right for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer he's like a man or a woman who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. You hear that? If you hear a sermon on Sunday and you go out and you actually do some stuff and you make some changes in ways that God's called you to do it, you're going to be blessed. Who wants to be blessed? Yeah, all right. But being blessed is conditional in this scripture. Being blessed is conditional upon acting upon what God shows you. All right? So you need to do it. You don't, it's not like stationary blessing. Like I'd like to find someone who can point out a scripture verse where you sit there and you do nothing and God just brings blessing upon you for being apathetic and doing nothing. Now you don't earn the blessing by doing something, but God kind of just encourages, doesn't he? That's the kind of God he is. All right? I'm not saying that there aren't times in your life where you can be massively bummed out and really struggling and you're not doing anything and God will come and he'll bless you and he'll help you. He'll do that. That's, that's what mercy is. All right? But in terms of total inactivity, is God going to come and encourage you when you're in activity? I don't think so. All right? It would be like rewarding a kid who fails every subject at school because they don't put any work in, rewarding him with some nice restaurant meal. Kid comes away and goes, cool, I'll keep doing nothing. That's a good idea. And it's a weird thing because sometimes uh, in our faith you can actually get to the point where you just think, why isn't God doing anything? Well, it may be because you're not doing anything. Maybe. And it's not like you earn it, but it may be because you're not doing anything. And he's calling you to actually make some changes and actually get to work in some areas and then he's actually going to bring some blessing and, and make some stuff happen. You see... This is one thing that God's speaking to me at the moment and I, I think I'm going to talk about it next week is that God loves people who take risks. He loves them. He loves risk takers. I just read this morning in um, Joshua, I think uh, Caleb's like about 80, I think, and it says his strength hadn't decreased the whole way through his life and when he got his shot at what country he wanted out of the Canaanite land, he chose the hill country and you know what he says to uh, Joshua? He says... It may be, I think it was Joshua, he, he says it may be that God actually might give us that hill country. That, that's a risk, right? He's one of the only two spies that came back from the land of Canaan the first time who got it right. He's 80 years old and he takes a punt at some hill country that he mightn't be able to conquer. That's cool. Well, that's really good. Imagine what, I mean, there's a lot of people here today. I think this is a lot. Imagine if all of us just started taking risks in our own lives and around us where we're just not sure about how the outcome was going to go. We would be a powerful group of people, wouldn't we? And on top of that, I think God would actually bring his blessing and God would do a whole bunch of stuff through us because God loves us to put ourselves in precarious positions for his glory. 
and for his honour. So you get yourself out on the edge of the cliff for him, all right? And you're saying, man, if you don't come through, I'm dead, all right? And sometimes people have done that across the world physically, haven't they? They've gone to other countries, they've been uh, missionaries in other countries, and if you don't come through for me, and if you don't help me, I'm dead. I'm out here, I just want to be part of what you're up to, and I'm just going to need your help. And he does. And honestly, I've been a a bit of a sceptic in, in a sense for a little while in the sense that I think part of the reason why God doesn't do the miraculous things that we hear about in other countries is because we don't take enough risks. We get insurance, and then we get insurance on our insurance, all right? Then we get plan C if the two insurances don't work, and then we've still got 15 grand sitting in the bank account, all right? Or we've still got two jobs, and we're going to find some way to make it work if God doesn't come through. And I think it's really important that we learn to be good risk-takers, not foolhardy risk-takers, but put ourselves out for the glory of God and take a chance. And this many people taking big risks for God's glory in Toowoomba, transformation. That's what's going to happen, transformation. There's a tendency in uh, the church to end ministry too soon. There's a tendency to end it when there's real insight, confession and commitment to change. This statement is pretty well true of my experience in church and it could even be true of the project. We've been going almost 12 months and uh, I think between everyone who's come and preached the whole way along, I think we've presented some good stuff. All right? And we're always working to make it better and to land it better. And people have said to us sometimes, oh yeah, I get an understanding and I get a revelation. or I, just, I can just see what you're talking about. I can just see something new there. Do you know something? God's not just interested in someone having new understanding about something. New understanding in God's economy should always lead to literal change. Always. And so in a sense, I mean, I've said this a few times when we prayed before the service. I said, if there was some way for us to find out whether anyone had changed at all as a result of a Sunday morning service for the project, and let's say one week we knew for sure that no one had changed, we wasted our time. That's the truth. And I'm not saying that to have a go at you. I'm just saying that's the truth, all right? Because biblically, the idea is that people need to shift and people need to change. And understanding something and seeing something clearly is not enough. There's got to be literal change. Paul Tripp, uh, the biblical counselling lecturer that I've got at the moment for my subject that I'm studying, has got this maxim. He says, change hasn't taken place until change takes place. And that's really, really important for church. It's really important for us, all right? Because they're really good uh, sometimes at getting new revelations and new understandings, but then nothing happens. And if that's the case, then it's not finished. The circle actually isn't completed. It's broken. And so that's what we're on about today. And the rest should be pretty uh, swift, by the way, if you're wondering. This is the model that I taught in the second session, all right? That God uh, leads by example. God comes and builds relationship with us and he loves us. And there's a whole bunch of components that we covered in loving us. Uh, Jesus actually came and he got to know us and he got to know what our world was like. And uh, you can see that in Hebrews where it talks about we have a high priest who is able to sympathise with our weaknesses because he got tempted in the same ways. So he learnt lots of stuff about us. So when you're trying to work with someone else to help them, love always comes first. And then you need to get to know them, get to know their world, get to know their situation. And then you can speak the truth in love to them which we uh, covered in the last session. And then the last bit is actually helping them to change. Okay? And the last one is what we're doing today, the do section. All right? And it doesn't have to be a linear love, no, speak, do. All right? In conversations, you tend to duck all over the place. All right? But generally, those kind of concepts are going to be uh, in conversations where you're actually helping each other to mature. So today, the application of do or the application of change is about you personally and you with reference to helping other people change. Here we go. First thing that's critical in uh, helping someone else to change and I think in helping you to change is to establish your agenda really, really clearly. This is what that means. Uh, you're going to ask questions about the, what kind of information have you gathered 
from the other person. And basically what that means is as you've talked to them and you've found out about their situation, what's the kind of information you've got and how does the Bible actually fit in with that information? What are God's goals for change in this person's situations? You, you could ask yourself this. wonder whether you ever do. What are God's goals for change in my particular life? The areas of my life. I mean, it's, the more I've thought about this, and if you talk to Anne, she'll tell you the truth, that I don't plan that far into the future. All right? But I thought personal change has probably got to be probably the most critical component of your future almost of anything. Like I would say it would be more critical uh, than, uh, than academic study. Uh, it would be a really significant determinant of where you actually end up, what actually happens with you as a person, what happens with your character. And so I, just, I would submit to you today, do you actually spend time just pulling aside and just getting some kind of plan about how you're going to change, where you want to go, what areas of your life are weak, I mean, you can do it. I'm not kind of talking about this in the sense of the conscience and, and the guilty conscience and conviction and that kind of stuff. I'm thinking about this more from a proactive kind of initiative-taking point of view where you just kind of go, OK, I want to change and I want to develop. So maybe I'm just going to take aside 15 or 20 minutes. I mean, Tony Robbins or whatever that guy is, that's Tony Robbins, isn't it? Motivational guy, all right? Everyone's kind of saying, a lot of people are saying this, and motivational people, right? Work out where you want to go and what you want to be and all this sort of stuff. Well... We're not kind of saying work out where you want to go and what you want to be. We're kind of saying work out where God wants you to go and what he wants you to be and sit down and think about what needs to happen to actually change and to transition in that direction. What are God's goals for change in this person's situations? All right? What are the biblical methods for accomplishing God's goals for change? The Bible's very clear about ways that you should do things. It's clear about the what. It's also clear about the how. All right? So when you do that for yourself, work out... Where do I need to get to? And then search the scriptures. All right, get help from someone who knows the scriptures. What are the methods in the Bible about how you actually affect change in that particular direction? And the last one here that's really important when you're working with other people, but this is important with you too, is you just need to know that the main show in town is God's story, his redemptive story. And God is not one of our extras that we invite onto our set all right? We don't invite God onto our set and uh, he's an extra that helps. He's almost like a, another Hindu God because we just get him on our set because he's going to help things to go better. And why betide him if he doesn't do what we want him to do? We get cranky up with him and we rail at him and we bang on his door with our prayers and we go, what is the deal with you? Why don't you do the things that I want you to do? And his answer, or one of his answers is going to be, listen, champ, you're actually part of my story. I'm not part of your story. I'm not an extra. You're in my story. And that's really critical when you're thinking about the way that you need to change and the way that people around you need to change because that's going to be something that they trip over all of the time, especially when bad things happen. If bad things happen to them, they'll get angry and they'll get frustrated and they'll blame God because he didn't do what, they were, what he was supposed to do. Or they'll sit there and they'll say, um, God's not doing anything in my life. Or they'd ask questions that actually don't make sense, like, uh, why isn't God doing anything in my life? Now, the Bible's very clear about the fact that he's always doing something. That's in John 5, and he's always doing something in your life. When the person asks, why isn't God doing anything in my life, you know what they're really asking? Why isn't he doing what I want him to do in my life? That's what they're really asking. And the bottom line is that what we actually want and what we actually need most of the time spiritually are two totally different things. And most of the time, and I would say exclusively all of the time, God's working on what you need. And most of the time, you're thinking about what you want. <laughs> so he's doing this, and he's not doing this a lot of the time. Sometimes they overlap. But he's not doing this over here and so you get cranky and bitter and you fire up a few prayers to him and say you should be doing more than what you're doing. The truth is he is doing more than what you think he's doing and he is doing much more significant work than you think he's doing. It's just not what you want him to be doing. And he's working in you to make you fit in with this scene that's going on. There's some kind of scene that you're part of. 
Everyone has got significance in this scene because he gives you significance. You don't have significance in your own right per se. You need to be careful, a little bit careful of that, and I can explain that later for you. Our significance is always derived from God giving us significance. And that's why in the Bible it's quite clear about the fact that when human beings turn away from God, they become worthless. Because our value and our significance is actually derivative. It's not independent, it's not autonomous. Anyway, I won't go into that anymore. Establish the agenda, be clear about it, and you can do that in your own life and with other people. This is going to involve really, really specific change. All right? One of the things the uh, biblical counsellors teach is uh, they use this line, they say change has to happen in the details because everyone lives in the details. All right? And if there's one area in my assignments where I've been caned, in my reflection areas, is they just keep pushing, and it's really irritating, I've got to tell you, but they just keep pushing to get down to specifics. And I'd write something, and I'd think, that's really specific. And he'll go, it's not specific. And you just go, okay, all right. So I need to write something more specific. And then you just get closer to the bone and starting to hurt. And Okay, well, you need to keep going, because that's still not quite specific enough, right? And the bottom line is that often in our lives, there's some areas that God wants to change, and we're actually... If you're anything like me, it's a bit scary to get specific, all right? Because it gets a bit dark in the specific areas, all right? And if you're actually a journaler or anything like that, which, is, which I'm not, but I have to do for my course, you actually have to write stuff down. And sometimes if you're getting down to specifics, you're going to write something down and you're just going to go, oh, what's it's like you had to duck or something. Did someone just yell out four? You know, you just think, that is, that is, man, that's, that is, I can't believe I thought that. I can't believe I was up to that in that situation. But that's where we've got to get down to is specifics. We've got to ask ourselves what actually needs to change, all right? What needs to change about relationships, right? Often we've got issues in relationships and things need to change, all right? How will the relationship change? Um, sometimes, I think a classic example where living situations need to change is we can often build our life on an idolatrous foundation of materialism. All right? And we get in a tough situation and the real issue or, or the, 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 the way that we're actually getting locked in our situation is because we're not prepared to end up with less money or a dodgier house and we kind of get trapped in it, all right? And it's like we're in this situation where maybe God actually might lead us forward, but because we're so committed to our materialistic assumptions underneath, we're not actually putting options on the table that he wants to lead us through. Does that make sense? And sometimes we've got to go right back. And, and sometimes when people come up and they talk about struggles and issues that they're having, uh, you can't work out a way to fix the actual issue that they've uh, presented because the real issue is that it's built on a whole bunch of assumptions and it's built on a foundation that they're not prepared to change. And you've actually got to get to work on that. Um, I mean, you could have a situation, for example, where you've got a husband and a wife who are under financial stress. The husband's out of the house a lot, working lots, the wife's out of the house, working lots, and they're having marital conflict, all right? Now, there may be some legitimate stuff in the marital conflict that needs to be dealt with, but the truth is, if they're actually committed to having the house, the two cars, the toys, uh, the adult toys, the kids' toys, and they're not prepared to compromise that, that could actually be the foundational issue that's going on that's causing trouble for them. All right? And change sometimes needs to happen in those foundational areas. I hope some of this is making sense. Is this making sense? All right. Functional goals, all right? Sometimes functional goals need to change. And functional goals are really, what are people really living for? What is it that they really want? Okay, you've got to get down into that and the nitty-gritty of what that is. That might be where the change needs to happen. This is a classic one in our culture. I've got a great article. It's a little bit more academic. If you want, I can email it to you about how uh, we've transitioned from a sense of... Uh, uh, wants to needs in our culture. It's really quite insightful. And I'll just throw this in. I went to the uh, adolescent uh, mental health facility at the Toowoomba Base Hospital on Thursday morning, which is really quite interesting. They've got about eight um, inpatient beds in there for uh, adolescents, and they've got about 14 day, day visitor places there. 
it's really interesting. And I, I, st- I stood there, and while they were talking, something just twigged for me. All right, and it was this whole notion that uh, they talked about the stigma of mental health. All right, that there's a stigma surrounding mental mental health. And then I just realised. I thought, okay, so if you're not approaching it from a biblical perspective, you get rid of the stigma of mental health, the negative vibe around mental health, by saying it's a sickness. All right. And I think that's actually been part of the process the whole way along is some kind of transition from what I really want and the dysfunction that's happening in what I really want actually ends up in some kind of sickness. And you actually get rid of the stigma by calling it a sickness. The weird thing is that for those who came and did the bib counselling training is that the Bible gets rid of the stigma of mental health not by saying it's a sickness but by saying everyone's sick. And everyone's got the same mechanism that's going wrong in their life. And so when you go to help someone else, every single other person that you help in some way is you. You're doing the same things. My three-year-old does the same things I do. When, he, when his world doesn't happen the way that he wants his world to happen, he gets cranky and he gets angry. And he loses it. And when he gets angry, that disrupts my world and what I want to happen, and so I get angry. Not every time, but can you see that? And it's exactly the same mechanism going on. Now, I'm not going to call my three-year-old, you have a mental illness, all right? I'd say you have a heart illness, all right? Because Jeremiah 17, I think it is, or 9, says uh, the heart is deceitfully sick. And I'll talk to my son knowing that my heart is sick too. There's no stigma because we're all sick. You're all sickos, all right? That's what I'm saying. It's this whole thing about what's important, what's needed. And it's almost, and I'm not saying that they do this, but it's almost like once you call it an illness, well, people have to have the stuff that they want. It's a need. All of a sudden they're sick. And who's going to deny a sick person? All right? Anyway, we'll keep going. Five, sometimes spiritual habits need to change. All right? Relationship with God comes into play. So think about yourself with these. Maybe there's financial issues. Maybe money plays too big a role. Maybe you or the person you're working with is really bad at managing money and there's some stuff that needs to change with money. Maybe they're not part of the community in the church. Maybe if they're in the community, maybe if they're in, not the community groups are the be-all and end-all, but if they're in community where people speak the truth to each other, and they bring each other to Jesus, maybe some of these issues would actually be sorted out. Maybe for some of you, I don't know, I'm not having a go at you, but you can measure it, right? Maybe that's part of the fact that you haven't actually changed that much is because you actually never actually get close enough to people who are prepared to speak the truth to you. Yeah, you get your posse and you get your people around you that are going to say the things that you want, but you know that you actually need to find people who say stuff to you that you don't like because it's often the people who've got the guts to do that they're actually the people that are going to help you to see things that you need to see, which is why you need to be in community. I mean, I'll be honest with you, there's stuff that Gilmore and Crowther say sometimes really irritates me, all right? Just shut up, all right? I never say it to them, I don't think, but I just think, shut up, you can just be quiet, I don't need to hear that, all right? It's a bit the same with Ange. Ange says stuff at home, you just go, that can't be right. There's no way that's right. I have to be right, all right? But it's this uh, invasive community that actually speaks into each other, that brings about change, which is a really, really good thing, all right? Because what it's doing is it's getting the crack addicts off their idols and helping them to be more fully human than they've ever been before. But they just, we all just need a good slap every now and then, all right? And sometimes we need a good cuddle and a slap, all right? A good cuddler, this is not like about harsh, rude words. This is about, man, let me help you to see the truth and I'm going to help you to walk through it. All right? That's probably most of the way that confrontation should happen in the church. It should be kind of a, a, a slap with a kind of nice sheepskin mitt on or something. I don't know. It's just, just let me show you, brother. You know, let me show you what's going on here and let me just walk you through it. And you're just going to be so much better for it. All right? And God will be glorified so much more, which is the main deal we're on about here because it's his story. Maybe you've got some uh, issues uh, in your extended family or in your family history. All right? Some people have got some uh, pretty intense family histories. 
all right? I hear some really, really messy stuff at the school here as uh, dean of students, all right? And the truth is that uh, you, sometimes God's going to have people actually bring all that stuff back up and just trudge through it with him. They've trudged through it and they've tried to, they found a whole bunch of saviours to help them go through it. And those saviours most of the time hurt them more. And often when God wants to do some work in someone, it might mean actually bring that stuff up again and just walk through it with me. And I'm just going to show you what I want you to do as we walk through and I want you to deal with that thing and that one over there. That's going to be a hard one. It's really going to hurt when you deal with that. But I want you to deal with that because there's going to be healing on the other side. All right? And he's just, that's what he wants to do. And that's, we're in a redemption group at the school here, uh, finished at the end of last term. And that's one of the things that the students kept saying. They kept saying, I don't want to have to go back into this stuff because it hurts so much. The truth is that it still dominates them. They're already in it. They're just trying to suppress it and it's not working. So my invitation to them was go back into it because Jesus will actually bring some closure and some help with that. And he'll bring some healing in some areas where you need to get some healing. That's uh, personal history. Uh, Work and career, there's going to be some uh, changes that might need to happen there and even... uh, thoughts at the point of uh, interpretation and how do you interpret life. All right, I've got 15 minutes and I'm going to make it. All right, here we go. The second thing that you need to do, both for you personally and when you're working with other people, is to clarify responsibility. This is really important, all right? And there's this great diagram that uh, is in uh, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, which I hope will be helpful for you. This is a diagram here. You've basically got two ovals there. And the uh, inside oval is uh, the areas that uh, you're responsible and I'm responsible for, and the outside oval are the things that, uh, that God's responsible for. Okay? And uh, we'll just read through. This inner circle represents the things that God has called me to do that I cannot pass on to anyone else. The only proper response is to seek to understand and to faithfully obey. Okay? So there's a bunch of stuff God's given you to do. No one else can do it. He's not going to do it. It's your job. All right? The outer uh, section around that inner oval uh, represents the things that concern me but are beyond my ability and thus not my responsibility. I need to identify these things and entrust them to God. All right, now, I'll tell you what people do and I'll tell you what you and I do because we're people too. All right? What we do is we either shrink down the inner oval and we stop doing some things that God's calling us to do, or we enlarge it and we start taking over jobs that are God's to do. All right? A classic example of something that is exclusively God's job is the salvation of your children. You can't do that. That's beyond your power. It's in God's power, but it's beyond your power. There's no way you are ever going to be able to do that. But can you see how if someone actually takes that job on and that inner oval goes out by an increment and takes over the job of God to uh, make sure my children get saved, it actually becomes a pretty oppressive house. It becomes pretty anxious. All right? And when things don't go the way that they're supposed to go, it becomes pretty depressing. Now, you can actually, you can actually expand that inner circle in lots of different ways because there's actually a whole bunch of things in your life that aren't directly under your control. They're directly under God's control and it's his job to make sure they get looked after. And if you take those things over, not only are you missing out on doing things that he's called you to do, but you're actually going to be stressed, depressed, anxious and fearful because you're trying to look after things you have no control over. On uh, Tuesday morning, I uh, talked about biblical counselling for about 10 or 15 minutes to 900 Christian teachers, right? And I get really nervous. I get nervous before I talk to you, right? Pretty much every time people spin out, I just go, I get nervous every time, before every time that I talk. But you know what? On Tuesday morning, there was nothing, I had absolutely no control over what anyone in that room actually thought about me. But do you know I really wanted it? I really wanted it. And you know, my inner oval at some level was threatening to take over that aspect of, I mean, it's not God's job to make sure everyone likes me, all right, because they don't, all right, and if it is, then he's failing, and he doesn't fail at anything, so it's not happening, all right? But do you get my point? If I start taking over something that's outside of my control, 
and outside of my responsibility is probably a better word, then uh, it just gets stressful. So if I don't leave that one with him, you know, Tuesday morning I had to just say, okay, God, I'm just going to do what you've asked me to do. All right? Inner oval. Okay? And the stuff outside the inner oval, that's yours. And I'm not taking it on. Decrease in anxiety, decrease in fear, decrease in pressure. All right? Now, when you're working with other people, but also when you're looking at it yourself, this is really critical to how you're actually going to handle stuff in your life. Now, you've got a few different extremes. One of them is that you can have uh, a mini-messiah, all right? And you've probably seen some people like this, right? And the mini-messiahs are the people whose inner oval is taking over most of what God's doing and, and the stuff that his, is his responsibility. I mean, you could even really, you could get pretty anxious and fearful and depressed, maybe, about how work's going for you because you're trying to control your job and have security in your job and and have enough food for the family. Now, that's really important, but doesn't it say in the Sermon on the Mount in in Matthew that God gives the the birds of the air food? He prepares that for them. That's kind of his job, you know? What's your job? Well, your job is to do what he's asked you to do and for you to work hard. So do your job. Stop trying to take over his job. And you can, you can see how people who, get, who blow this out, other people come and get into contact with them and it just gets messy and people get angry with them because they're trying to control them, they're trying to do things. You know, and it's just a bit of a mess. And what it comes down to is the fact that people are not clear or they're not following out what God's called them to do um, and leaving the rest to him. The opposite is true also. God, God's vacationers, right? These are the people and they're just really frustrating, right? You find them really frustrating because they seem to be kicking back spiritually, sipping on a pina colada, all right? Not that we have that for communion at the project, but you get what I'm saying. They're having a nice little time in the sun on some Bahaman island, all right? And you're just going, what the heck is going on here? This person's doing nothing. There's all these things in their life that God's called them to do and they're not doing it. And that actually creates some anxiety and some fear and some some tension and some pressure between people as well because they're just not getting done what they need to get done. And probably there's some people in the church here who are mini-messiahs or tend toward mini-messiahs and others who tend toward being on a holiday all the time and thinking that God's going to get a whole bunch of stuff done that's actually their responsibility. And then you've got people who are confused, all right? They're all over the place. Sometimes they're trying to take over God's stuff and other times they're just not doing enough. Maybe that's you. It's probably going to be some people that you're going to come in contact with and it'll be helpful for you if you can help them to distinguish between what's God's job and what's their job. So I don't like lists, but you should make a list, all right? And uh, we probably don't quite have enough time, but I'd encourage you to go home and just take five, ten minutes aside and make a list for yourself. What are God's jobs? Am I trying to do any of God's jobs? What are my jobs? Am I doing all the jobs I'm supposed to be doing? Am I doing all the things that he's given to me to get done? Make a list of them. It may help. All right. Almost done. Number three of helping someone to change is to recognise that someone's identity is critical to how they change. This is my dodgy little uh, diagram here. People always operate, just operate, sorry, I'll say that, operate. People always operate out of their identity. They always do, and you do all the time. I do, all right? We've got two options of how we're going to operate outside of our uh, identity. Uh, We can either operate out of my track record and the size of the problem that I'm facing or I can operate out of my identity in Christ and his presence, his promises and provision. Because what we do all of the time as human beings is we constantly are assessing situations around us and we're measuring our own potential against the situations that we come up against. And when we measure our own potential against the situations that we come up against and we stick with what your track record is and you stick with the size of the problem that you're facing, a lot of the times you're going to miss the opportunity that God's got right in front of you. Now, sure enough, David uh, 
in the Old Testament had a pretty good track record of beating lions and bears. But he had a huge problem in front of him in Goliath, didn't he? He could have been stopped by the size of the problem. And in fact, the whole Israelite army was stopped by the size of the problem. Now, he may have had a little bit of a bit of background skill that he'd developed over the years, but you know what he came in at the end? He came in and he just had some kind of incredible faith and trust in God that God was going to come through. So he ceased operating by the size of the problem in front of him and he started operating by God's strength and his abilities. See, people tend to forget who they are in Christ. And when you forget who you are in Christ, you stop pursuing what belongs to Christ. You see, identity amnesia leads to identity replacement. And it happens all of the time. We don't live in an identity vacuum. We'll just find a different identity to follow. This is a classic scripture in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1 that speaks directly to this. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. All right, here's your test, right? Think about how you've gone in the last week with these ones. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control. It's getting a bit messy now, isn't it? All right. How have you gone with self-control over the last week? And self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Quick inventory. You don't have to put your hand up, but how have you gone with those qualities? Can you tick the boxes in the last week? If you can't, Peter tells you why you didn't in the next bit. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. You lost sight of your identity. That's what happened. All right? Like if I said to you today, in those moments where you lost your control, your self-control, at that moment were you thinking, yeah, Jesus owns me. I'm, I'm his son, I'm his daughter. He's given me his Holy Spirit and that Holy Spirit is a power within me where I can do things that I previously couldn't do. This is exciting. I'm actually not stuck anymore. He freed me from being stuck and I don't have to fall into losing my self-control. I mean, if we were honest about it, did you have those thoughts at the moment where you lost your self-control? No, you didn't. So you lived out of your identity. Sometimes, like for me, my identity often is I'm on my own. I've got to make this work. God's got something else to do or uh, maybe he just doesn't like me that much at the moment because I didn't read the Bible and pray yesterday so this is me, I'm just kind of on my own I'm an individual, independent human, autonomous human here and if I don't get it done, it's not going to get done see that's identity All right. and if you're going to change and if you're going to help anyone else to change you need to keep coming back to people and just saying hey listen, that's not you that is not you and some of you may be doing stuff now in your lives, and it, you just need to hear someone say, and I'm saying it to you now, it's not you. That's not who you are. You're actually having an out-of-body, out-of-spirit, out-of-soul experience doing this stuff because that's not what God wants you to do. And Peter would say to you, you need to go out of church on Sunday at TCC and you need to act in line with who you are. And you need to act not just like you have a power inside of you by the Holy Spirit to be different, but you actually do. You do. And so you go out and you do it. And you stop doing all this other dumb stuff that's not you. It's like some kid that just wants to play in the mud all the time, you know? And the dad's kind of going, well, I kind of bought you like uh, infinite tickets to Disneyland, so I don't know why you just want to play in the mud. You know, it's like live in line with who you are. Because you always live in line with who you are. And so you're going to need to remind yourself that you're not that person who does those things. You need to remind other people about that. 
And that's really, really encouraging because when someone else gets stuck in something, you can go up and just go, hey, you're not doing that literally, right? But in your heart you're doing that because you love them, right? In your heart you just go, wake up to yourself, all right? That's, that's not what God wants you to do. And then this scripture, this is another classic identity scripture in Galatians 2 verse 20. Check this out. Paul starts off with a historical reality. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. That's what's happened. Happened in history. When I came to faith, it just made me part of it. All right? I came to faith. I came to trust in God. And when I came to trust in God, it made me part of the historical reality that I died on the cross with Jesus. My old identity is gone. All right? It's gone. This is all of you. If you're a Christian, if you say you're a Christian, it's gone. All right? So you just need to learn to stop living as the old Peter, the old Sue, the old Angela, the old scene, all right? There's no old Peter, Sue, Angela scene. There's, there's no one. That's gone. That's crucified, right? There's new Peter, new Angela, new scene, new Sue, all right? And it's actually the new one that's actually the true one. The other one was the false one, all right? And Paul's going, you've been crucified with Christ. Historical reality, present reality. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Like, think about that. Like, wouldn't your week be just totally different if you lived with a constant awareness of this life of Christ that lives inside of you and it creates things? I mean, think about the life of Christ and the power that the life of Christ has and that's inside of all of you right now. It's in there. And you don't live in the fullness of that because none of us actually do. And you need to have preachers regularly standing up and saying, you have an opportunity, you have a power inside of you that you don't even understand. And this is not some mystical thing. This is a grounded, practical, changing reality that lives inside of you that can make you a man and a woman that everyone around you, they're never going to say, Man, you haven't changed a bit in the last five years. I'll come up and go, who the heck are you? And where did you come from? You look like a friend I used to know. Yeah? This is what God wants to do. All right? And there's power and there's strength in it, right? Because the power and the life of Jesus brought a dead body up and has created millions of Christians, perhaps billions, over the years of people following him prepared to die for him. Is that not life? See, that's identity. And if you actually go into this week, you think, oh, you know, like, and you're not doing that out loud because people are going, hey, hey, just weird. They sound like some crazy elephant, right? But you, you get that oh, on the inside and you're just going, yeah, like, you can't be beaten. Do you get that? Like tomorrow could throw everything at you, everything. You could get killed tomorrow and you're not going to get beaten. Do you know that? And you're not, you're not downtrodden and you're not depressed. You might find it really hard to handle, right? Because usually dying hurts, okay? But you don't get beaten by being killed, all right? And you actually see that in Hebrews 11. The people who, who had faith and trusted in God, even when they got sworn in half, they didn't lose because they had the power of Christ inside of them and they were trusting in him and he was doing something far beyond what they were imagining, probably. I mean, that would look like a, you know, that's like 10-0 in soccer if you get sawn in half in my books. But not for God, because there's, there's power in it. And who knows for all those guys, I think it was in Nero's garden, they were covered in tar and set alight so that he'd have some lighting for his outdoor parties, the Christians, which is what happened power of Christ in them, isn't it? Yeah? Yeah, you're going to go with that. I mean, we could have a test run if you want, but that would be brutal and we'd probably end up in jail, so we're not going to do it. But Do you get what I'm saying? You could do that. You could do that. You could, you know, if we really got a hold of it, you, 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 could, you could be killed and you could have the, the power of Christ inside of you and it would be okay. Like it really, it really would because it's that good. It's that good. And, and for some of us, it's just like, seriously, we're going to go down in one car? <laughs> do you get what I'm saying? It's just, I, don't, I don't think I'm going to do it. No, the power of Christ and your identity in Christ is so rock solid and it's so powerful and it's so certain that you could go through the most brutal thing. You could have no car. 
you could have to ride a horse, you know. Well, let's go back 150 years and you're riding a horse to work. All right? And that would be okay because the power of Christ is within you. And you could be, you could be uh, diagnosed with cancer. You could be diagnosed with a brain tumour. God could call you to go and be a missionary in a Muslim country and it would be okay because the power of Christ is within you. And the way that we live is reflective of whether we know that or not. And you know, the truth is that probably most of us are not even close. For a lot of us, probably we're not even close to understanding exactly what that means. I don't think I'm even close. And I don't think I'm the most spiritual person here by any shot. All right? But I'm not even close. You know, you just get moments, you know. It's, it's, sometimes it's a bit like um, driving in the car when there's a storm, you know, and, and you, it's at night time and you can't see anything, but then the lightning just flashes and you just see everything for a sec. You know, sometimes in your life it's like that, or you just kind of go, oh, I could actually see what this could be like. And the gig is that you want to get to a place where the lightning flashes more, don't you? And you see what it could be like, because this is the truth of what it's like. And here's Paul's personal commitment coming out of that. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is Paul's change response, isn't it? Historical reality, present reality, this is what I'm doing. I'm just going to say, that's the end of my life. I'm doing his stuff. Because there's never any question about his strength if you're doing his stuff. Because he's always going to get his stuff done. See, biblical counselling does not offer a system of redemption. It actually offers people a redeemer that comes and lives inside of them and does stuff that they previously couldn't do. And the redeemer is the one that's our hope, yeah? Just going to fly through this real quick and we're done. We need to provide accountability to each other. But let me just say this. Accountability always needs to be the responsibility of the person that wants to be held accountable to seek it out. That's a bit of a confusing sentence, but this church does not believe in a heavy-handed, arm-twisting view of change where we've all got to get metal in each other's lives and get, make sure that other people change and manipulate them and put pressure on them. But we do believe that accountability is important. So I would submit to you that the following question who do you voluntarily make yourself accountable to? Because that's the direction it's got to come. It doesn't come top down, it comes bottom up. You need to have some people that you can bear your heart with and you know they're going to tell you the truth and you're going to put it out in front of them and you're going to keep going back to them even when they say stuff that you don't like. And you don't have to always agree with them but there's someone that you make yourself accountable to. Because people, as you can see in Hebrews 3 there, become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. All right? And the antidote, according to the author of Hebrews, is to exhort one another daily, hold each other accountable. We need to provide structure for people, guidance and wisdom. All right? Because the truth is that some of you, even now, might be thinking, I've got some areas in my life where I need to change, but I don't know how to do that. I don't know what the nuts and bolts are. And accountability and having someone to work with or a few people to work with helps to get the nuts and bolts here. Provide assistance, all right? People need help to uh, change sometimes, all right? And uh, if you're holding someone accountable, you can help them to change. People need encouragement because change is hard. It's really, really difficult. And any little steps forward are, um, need to be encouraged, all right? And there's also, who knows, this is true, there's a danger of, uh, excuse me, revisionist romantic history. You know what I'm talking about? Festy stuff in your past and you get far enough away from it and all of a sudden it starts looking good, you know? And it doesn't smell like a, a cesspit like it did when you were back in there. You actually get some kind of romantic notion about it. That wasn't too bad. I think I'd like to go back there. And you need someone to help you, don't you? Those times he comes along and says, seriously, that, that, you just need to know that's not roses back there. You remember it smelled like a cesspit? You just go, oh, okay, yeah, okay. Can you keep reminding me about that? Because that's what happens. 
doesn't happen all the time, but it does happen. And the last one there is uh, to provide a warning if people are, are slipping. All right? And this is uh, Galatians 6 verse 7. This is probably the final part of uh, helping someone to change is when they're determined to head back in the direction that they were going uh, and you've done everything you can to encourage them and you've gone through all those other steps of accountability and at, right at the end you're just going to go, listen, champ, here's a story. You reap what you sow. And I'm warning you right now that where you're going is not the right place to go. But when you actually put a warning out, it's kind of getting pretty close to the end of the accountability relationship. God, I just pray for... I ask your help for all of us. I ask that you'd help us to be more, more fully who we are than we've ever been. That you bring about change inside of us. That that conversation that... Uh, the Trinity had right at the very beginning where they said, let's make man in our image. God, thank you that you're still doing that and you're recreating and that you don't throw your hands up and throw your creations into the fire and just burn them up, but you seek to redeem and to change and renew and to fix what is broken. And uh, so God, I pray that you just give us really clear, uh, a clear understanding about what you'd have us do to change and to, and to transition in our lives, Lord, not just in our understanding, not just in revelation, but in reality. And God, I pray that in 12 months' time at the project, those who are standing here, who are still here, would be different, way different. That I would be different. That Diff and Nathan would be different, God. That our wives and families would be different. That we would all be different. That we'd be running up the escalator, in a sense, looking for... uh, your life to be bringing about the changes in us and in the people around us that we need and that they need so desperately.